1: Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod of the People. On this episode, we have Maria Haddon, who's running to be the first ever black queer woman in Chicago. She's also a community organizer. And we have Keena Collins, who's the chairperson of the Illinois Council on Women and Girls. We have to start
2: writing policy and including people into this movement and loving them radically like we have never loved before. Because if we want people to look at us different, we have to work on the internal work that needs to go on. But continuing to silence and marginalize groups within the oppressed group is not going to
1: help us at all. And we have the news, which you know. It's with me, Brittany, Clinton and Sam. And before we get in, I'll just say that something that's been on my heart is like, go where the love is. Is that I would hear people say like, go where the love is and I just didn't understand it. And now I'm like, I get it. That that doesn't mean that we don't walk into the risk. That doesn't mean that we don't challenge systems and structures. But when I'm thinking about like, where I'm doing my dream work, where I'm doing my hope work, where I'm trying to like, brainstorm and, and like, think about how we transform systems and like, do the best that we can do. Like, I got to go where the love is. And I used to think that That was like a fluffy idea And now I know that Part of it is being in places Where you know people have shared values Where you know people Like can challenge you And you can disagree And your ideas can be in conflict With you not being in conflict Like those to me are markers Of where the love is And I think that sometimes We inadvertently think that we have to Sort of feed into martyrdom To do this work What I now understand is that We need to go where the love is Let's go
3: Hey y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pack on all social media.
4: And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter and Instagram. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III.
3: I, 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 I,
1: I, I. <laughs> uh, that was just to make up. I was slow last week, so I had to, like, just, you know, be back. Uh, and this is Duray at DeRay, Derey, D E R A Y on Twitter. Clint, people, I've been on the book tour and people come up to me being like, I, I, I. And I'm like, just tweet, Clint. Because when I tell him that you said it to me, he thinks I'm being dramatic, but you really did say it to me, so i I hope those people have been reaching out to you,
5: yeah, I don't need that mess in my mention. y'all stay out. <laughs> stay away. We have a special guest in the studio today uh my my son is uh is is hanging out while we record um so if you hear uh laughter or whining or some strange amalgam of the two. Uh, that's that's him and not Sam.
3: So. Hey, Baby J.
1: Boom. And I saw a picture of uh, Baby J, and Baby J has the cutest shirt. It says, read to me. And I've seen a lot of baby shirts before, but read to me, it just was adorable. I was like, that is dope. I want a <laughs> read to me shirt. Uh-uh.
3: <laughs> I don't know if we've ever talked about this. Um, Clint, one of the most, I mean, you do a lot of amazing things every day, but one of the most amazing things I ever saw was when you were, at you all ceremony and you were talking to baby Jay and you were talking about all of the ways in which society was going to teach him as a young man certain lessons, and some of them would be good and some of them would be terrible. Um, and I'm I'm thinking about all of the dads who should be raising their sons like that, all of the parents in general who should be raising sons like that. I'm wishing that from everything it sounds like that Brett Kavanaugh's parents had done the same, and then a lot of the students that he went to school with, a lot of the young men that he went to school with, had gotten that same lesson. Especially as we think about Anita Hill and especially as we look ahead to Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's testimony on Thursday regarding Judge Kavanaugh's nomination.
5: Yeah, Brittany, I think for me, uh, it was especially important to to name that and to recognize the ways in which young men are taught uh, or boys are taught from a young age about ideas of power and and consent and what they, they believe they do or don't have a right to. Uh, and whose bodies they do or don't have a right to, and, and I think, you know, uh, my wife and I have uh, made it a point to to begin having those conversations with uh, our son from from a young age, and you know, obviously in an age appropriate way. But but to your point, I think we're seeing a very real sort of manifestation of the consequences of what happens when when that doesn't happen, and um, what's going on in the Kavanaugh hearing.
4: So this Kavanaugh situation keeps getting worse and worse and worse by the day, and more obscene, and. So now, you know, we're confronted with the possibility that this man will, despite everything, could be confirmed to a court and be the second, at least, justice on the court who has been credibly accused of sexual assault. Uh, Two out of the nine justices with Clarence Thomas. And so in what world is that a legitimate form of government where you have people who have likely committed sexual assault? in positions of power to determine the constitutional rights of every American, including the majority of Americans who are women. I'm not surprised, but at the same time, it is just deeply, deeply, deeply troubling that Republicans, out of the 300 plus million people in this country, picked somebody who has been credibly accused of sexual assault. And, and from everything that that it that we've learned, it seems like they already knew that. Right when you see how they stacked the the hearings uh, with the girls' basketball team, and they had all of these letters from I think it was 65 uh, women who quote unquote vouched for Kavanaugh, but then after later on we learned that many of them actually uh, didn't vouch for him at all or retracted that. And so you know, certainly we can have a standard where out of all of the people in this country, we could pick somebody for the court who has not been credibly accused of sexual assault, like that should be just bare minimum standard, right? On top of everything else in, ter- in terms of their record, you know, their career. I mean, that's just like common sense. Uh, and it's wild that this is still a con- even a conversation. Uh, and then even if his nomination is defeated, I mean, he's still going to be on the U.S. Court of Appeals for D.C., which is the second most powerful court, in the nation. He's on it right now, right? He's already in that position. It's a lifetime position. And so we really need to start shifting the conversation and talking about. I mean, he shouldn't even be on that court. He shouldn't be on a court, right? He should actually not be in a position to determine what rights people have in this country, especially women, right? And so, you know, he needs to be impeached from that position. Uh, and I think more and more after hopefully this nomination is defeated, uh, we can shift into. Electing Democrats into power and moving forward with removing not only Kavanaugh but so many of these men. Um, thinking about Jim Jordan. I'm um, thinking about so many of these other men uh, in positions of power uh, who have been involved in this type of criminal activity and violent and violence against women. So uh, I'm hopeful that we can get to the, to that conversation because it desperately needs to happen. Uh, where we're talking about impeachment of Kavanaugh
3: and what we're teaching young people. What we are teaching young men. Um, is acceptable behavior, and what we're teaching young girls uh, is behavior that they have to accept that that if they are ever to be harmed, if they're ever to be assaulted, um, that that they can never actually come forward and say anything. And and I would say not just young women, right? But anybody who ends up being the survivor of a sexual assault, that them actually coming forward uh, will not be treated as, as truth. It will not be treated as valid. It will not be treated as traumatic. That is what this moment is telling so many young people. And it's not just the fact that it potentially happened it is the fact that he potentially lied about this and so many other things people who sit on that bench certainly are human but they should be above reproach in such a way that they are qualified to be making choices that will dictate the rest of the future for this country
5: and part of what i've been thinking a lot about this week is uh you know a, a lot of the discourse i think is is being shaped or, or is, is through the lens of like, oh well, he was seventeen when he did this. Boys will be boys. Seventeen-year-old teenagers when they're drunk, you know, things happen. And I and I've been thinking a lot. There was a, a tweet uh, that went viral. I can't remember the the young woman who posted it, but it was something along the lines of, "I'm so unsettled by the nature of the the discourse that that suggests that like a seventeen-year-old isn't mature enough to make decisions around." Whether or not they are going to sexually assault a young woman 's body, and this was a seventeen year old girl saying this and and that really struck me in a profound way in thinking about how how many young girls and, and young women or or women who have experienced this, as I think we 've seen over the past week and several weeks with uh, so many people coming forward and, and so courageously sharing their stories, like what is it what are we telling these people men and women uh, who have been the victims of sexual assault uh, about the legitimacy of their experience, or the legitimacy of their trauma, or 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 making excuses for those who committed real acts of harm against them, and I think you know we all here believe in in notions of restorative justice, and we believe in uh, in figuring out ways that are not specifically punitive um, to to navigate issues of, of justice. Um, but I also think that it is one hundred percent okay to have a a specifically high standard for someone who is in arguably the most powerful assigned position one can have in the United States for a lifetime appointment i think it is okay for there to be a different set of moral expectations and standards for someone who is going to occupy that position uh, and the way that the conversation is sort of happening uh, around this in, in as a means of excusing what uh, Kavanaugh uh, allegedly did has been I think difficult to to stomach and difficult to watch, especially as I watch so many people who've experienced this sort of trauma um, have to have to sort of you know experience people talking this way uh, day after day after day.
1: One of the things that I'm mindful of is that the old allegations are still problematic, so we we still don't know what Kavanaugh did as staff secretary. There are a lot of papers still missing uh, that we still need, and those demands are real. And the second is, is the new allegations, like Clint said, is that. Uh, whoever's on the court should be above approach. And there was somebody who said something recently online. I was reading this note that if Kavanaugh's confirmed, twenty-two percent of the Supreme Court will be former students of Georgetown Prep, a school of less than five hundred students, and that just reminded me of how at the top tiers of the criminal justice system or the the legal system we really are like they really are choosing from one small network that is like reinforcing the same sort of biases so when i think about judges like elected judges appointed judges like all these positions have a huge impact on the criminal justice system part of our work is also to make sure that they represent different experiences in america and it's been interesting to see this larger conversation about Kavanaugh come up because it's a reminder how like he just even the nomination is reinforcing like a very small subset of beliefs and practices and experiences in the country. And the third is obviously that the conversation around his past and sexual assault like has to be vetted with the most intense scrutiny uh, and it is It's another reminder that he's not fit to be on the court and that we should wait to appoint the next Supreme Court justice, certainly through this administration.
4: So my news is about absentee voting and some of the barriers to particularly college students and and, other young people being able to participate uh, in elections through absentee voting. Uh, So a a study was recently conducted. uh, It was a set of focus groups in Fairfax County, Virginia, uh, where they talked with a number of college students and learned that for many of them, uh, they were having trouble casting absentee ballots because uh, interestingly enough, uh, they didn't know where to get stamps uh, for the ballots to send them in the mail. And so this was a, you know, this is interesting because I like didn't even think about stamps necessarily being uh, like the barrier here, but uh, indeed, according to these focus groups, access to stamps, knowing where to get the stamps uh, is a huge barrier that many college students have uh, cited uh, as a problem. And what's interesting about this is that what I learned was that there's actually actually a patchwork system where different jurisdictions have different rules about what type of postage is required uh, to send in an absentee ballot. So in some jurisdictions, you you know, a regular stamp is required in other jurisdictions. You know, even a first-class stamp is not considered enough. It actually costs more than that to send a ballot. Uh, and so this varies by jurisdiction. It is confusing, uh, you know, potentially creating these types of barriers that make it even more difficult for young people. And we've talked in the past, you know, how, you know, turnout and participation in elections has been, you know, relatively low compared to other demographic groups uh, for young people. And here's just one of those examples of one of those barriers. Uh, what's also interesting about the stamp situation is that the U.S. Postal Service has actually issued guidelines uh, that state that even if somebody doesn't have, you know, postage, doesn't have a stamp on the, on the ballot, uh, it should be counted. Right, it should actually be able to be delivered without postage uh, to the election officials. But the problem is that those are guidelines. It's not like a set policy or like a rule. Uh, so, it's sort of like a recommendation. Uh, and you know, many people don't know whether or not their ballot will be counted without a stamp. Uh, and if folks don't know where to get those stamps, that creates real problems in terms of participation.
3: Sam, as somebody who has been on a college campus for the last three weeks. I feel like I have been doing nothing but talking about stamps because this is exactly the problem um, that not just young people in this survey identify, but young people all around the country are identifying. Those that are in school, they wonder, A, should I vote here where I go to school or should I vote absentee? There's a lot of calculus that goes into that, right? Obviously, we just want you to vote. Um, But there's a lot of calculus that goes into whether or not you should vote absentee or vote local to your college. If you decide to vote absentee, the rules are different in every single state, which means that there's not an easy way for student organizers on campus that are running some of these voting campaigns and challenges uh, at their various schools. There's not a centralized way for them to actually help people access those absentee ballots. But if you get over the hurdle of helping people decide if they want to vote absentee or locally, and if you get over the hurdle of helping people actually access those absentee ballots, receive them, and know what to do with them and know where to get them from, then you still end up with this problem with stamps. This is what happens when we are actually not thoughtfully modernizing access to things and that doesn't mean to completely swing the pendulum and make it such that mailing things in is not an option I'm one of those people who gets really frustrated with an app when the only way to handle customer service is through the app and like through email right like I sometimes I just want to pick up a phone and talk to somebody and tell them what happened um so you know we have to actually modernize things in a thoughtful way that gives people options but one of these options has to be that you can't have to rely on stamps in order to engage as a citizen in this country um the good news is, and this is actually related to my news, that a new NBC News and Gen Forward poll shows that even with these challenges, 55% of millennials are still planning to vote this November in the midterms. The survey shows that 19% of millennials say they will definitely or probably not vote, and then there's about a quarter of millennials who are uncertain. I would, of course, love for these numbers to be higher, but we've all talked all the time about the disenfranchisement that young people experience, um, the disillusionment that young people experience. I know young people on college campuses who were excited and showed up to vote, and then there were lots of funky things that got done with their polling places. They closed early, machines were broken, lines were too long, they had to get to class. So these things discourage people from the repeat activity of voting. And then on top of all of that, there's an understandable and valid feeling among a lot of young people that these are systems that have never worked for us in the past. And we should be clear that it's not that these young people are not civically engaged. Lots of them have engaged in ways that are not necessarily traditional, but they are still models of civic engagement, whether they've marched, whether they've called their senators, whether they've created local campaigns, whether they've created apps, whatever that is, a lot of them have been very civically engaged, but a lot of them are discouraged from voting in particular. So I'm glad to see that at least 55% of millennials have a plan to vote, but most certainly there are still obstacles between now and November that they're going to have to uh, overcome.
5: Yeah, I'm so glad y'all brought this up. This is incredibly important. Uh, And it's interesting because I think there's a lot of data and a lot of studies out there that uh, that are, are telling kind of different stories about the the extent to which college students uh, and young people are involved in the electoral process and have been over the past couple of years. So, so what's interesting is there was a new study at Tufts uh, that said that uh, turnout increased on college campuses in 2016. By three percent, and so turnout was forty eight point three percent in two thousand and sixteen as compared to forty five point one percent in two thousand and twelve and among those who were registered to vote sixty eight point five percent voted in two thousand and sixteen compared to sixty five point three in two thousand and twelve and so you know obviously it 's important to know that those were presidential election years, and uh, traditionally turnout has been a- abysmally low for young people. Uh, In midterm elections, uh, data suggests that only 18 percent of college students voted in 2014 compared to about 37 percent of people voting in the overall population. And and to your point about stamps, I think it's really interesting because I think it's we're in this moment in which so much of the technology uh, that has been used for for decades is now antiquated in the context of the young people coming of age today. So I recently talked to a group of high school students uh, who who ne- have never really had to use an analog clock, right? They've never, the only time they see, uh, you know, clocks with with two hands and, and non-digital clocks is if they're like, they have a, a grandfather clock in their home for for decoration or uh, and you know even more and more schools are beginning to not even use the analog clocks uh, to the same extent, so I think it 's you know thinking about the way that certain types of technology uh, are are maybe not of the best use in our sort of current technological and political moment uh, and and I'm, that the stamp comment made me think of that but but I think there 's also a sort of responsibility there 's an institutional responsibility from Uh, From our government, our federal government, our local government, our our state governments. But I think what's interesting is that a lot of universities have also taken a huge initiative to promote voting on their campuses, um, knowing that uh, voting has been, uh, you know, traditionally low on college campuses. And and I think that more universities are recognizing that they can do it in a way that is nonpartisan and in a way that is tied to understanding the importance of, of civic engagement. There, there's a big initiative at University of Michigan, for instance, that was profiled earlier this year in the New York Times. And, and I think more and more schools are starting to, using their sort of civic centers for civic engagement as a as a way to ensure that students throughout the campus are, are all registered, are all prepared, know all the steps that they have to take. Um, and, and I hope that everybody knows moving forward uh, what they need to do uh, on their respective campuses and their respective towns in order to to make sure you're registered and, uh, and everybody keeps talking about how important this election is and and we will continue to do so because it is. I hadn't even thought about like stamps as a barrier. Like I just hadn't even considered this
1: until both of you, uh, your news sort of overlapped and, and you brought this up and also what it means that in a lot of places uh, you can only buy stamps and books and like for some people like disposable income to be able to do that just isn't there but In terms of some of the data that I didn't know is, uh, Sam, when you talk about Florida, I had no clue that about 1% of all ballots cast by mail in Florida are rejected. And that that's about 28,000 votes. And like in between 24,000, 28,000 votes in 2012 and 2016, which is huge given that some of the elections in Florida have been by such slim margins that like the idea of, of ballots being thrown out for... Um, for any reasons that are mailed in is actually pretty significant, especially there. And I didn't know this, is that in 2016, 29% of all ballots in Florida were cast by mail. That's wild. So they think that that's actually going to increase this year. And that the rejection rate uh, varies by, by county. But what was interesting is that the rejection rate for Hispanic and Black voters is almost twice the rejection rate for white voters. So we think about this idea of having access to stamps or, or whatever, um, or why any reason why an absentee ballot is being rejected is like we see the racial disparities that like, continue. And what I again, I'm like there are a lot of things I didn't know that I wanted to share because I'm fascinated by is uh, the study talked about most male ballots are rejected because voters fail to sign the envelope or because their signatures don't match the signature that's on file. But like what do you do when a person's signature changes with age? Is that like the signature I put on file at 18 probably doesn't look exactly the same as my signature? at age 40. And the thought that people's ballots are being thrown away for that is like wild. So I think about all those things and it was like, I just didn't even know. And it is a reminder that we should ask the questions and like keep pushing in even the places that we take for granted sometimes. And I honestly had taken for granted like the absentee ballot space. I hadn't thought about that. So my news is, um, it's an article in the Atlantic called, is your local coffee shop, a low key opioid clinic? On a previous episode of the pod, we talked about how librarians are being a train to support people who are going through crisis with regard to overdosing, who are experiencing an overdose in the moment, um, and train how to deal with general crises because there's a spike in overdoses happening in public spaces. with well, this article did for me that I hadn't understood before, and like we talked about librarians, so like that made sense to me, but it started to flush out like why public bathrooms are starting to become spaces because they're safe, because they're clean, because they're private. So public bathrooms or bathrooms in general and businesses have actually become sites of overdoses in ways that are now measurable. And I just like hadn't thought about that before. And what does that mean to train uh, not only medical responders to, to deal with the, the change in context, but, but managers and not just in uh, coffee shops, but in libraries, in other any building that has a public restroom. And like, how do we make sure that, that people are trained um, in this study that has a small sample size, it notes that almost 60% of business managers encounter drug use in their public bathrooms. And I just hadn't, like, it makes sense to me why public bathrooms would be uh, a place that people go to, to, use, to use drugs in a safe manner if they're trying to be safe, um, and also a site where they're high overdoses. So I wanted to bring that because I just hadn't thought about that. And like, what that actually means for policy, what that means uh, for the way that we think about public health. Uh, I think is actually pretty significant. And We'd already talked about libraries, but I just hadn't thought about Starbucks. I hadn't thought about the many places in communities that have public bathrooms.
4: Addiction and substance abuse is a public health issue, and you know what what we see here are the ways in which, uh, for folks who are imprisoned, uh, there is almost no access to the type of care, the type of treatment that folks really need to get better. Uh, and you know, we think about the concept of you know a prison and incarceration. You know, there is sort of this theory that it should be about rehabilitation and making sure that people, you know, come out ready to, you know, that have dealt with sort of some of the issues that brought them into prison and they get out of prison, uh, sort of ready to reintegrate into society. And what we're seeing here is actually there's a yet another example of how prisons have really no intention of meeting people's needs especially with regards to health, and instead sort of make it even more difficult when people are trying to take matters into their own hands, are trying to get the treatment that they need, uh, they crack down on people uh, and make that even more difficult and punish people for that. Uh, And I'm reminded also of how, uh, as a related issue, folks who are incarcerated also have financial barriers to being able to access uh, the healthcare and medical treatment that they need. And that depending on the state, uh, there are pretty extreme medical co-pays uh, that prisoners have to pay in order to access medical treatment. So for example, in many states, uh, the medical co-pays can be, you know, anywhere from $3 to $10. But in, for example, in Texas, you have, it's $100 a year that you have to pay in order to get, uh, you know, medical care while you're in prison. Now, mind you, for somebody who's incarcerated in order to make that much money, even, you know, $5, $10 to pay for a medical visit. That means that's like 20 hours, 40 hours of work of hard labor in order to earn, you know, at cents an hour, which is what they make in order to earn the money to actually see a doctor. Uh, And in Texas, again, a hundred dollars a year and prisoners in Texas work full-time, they work in the fields in many cases, and they make no money at all doing that work. Um, so that's just another barrier that's been put in place, uh, not only to exploit prisoners and and take money from them, but also to to make it even more difficult for them uh, to access basic medical care uh, that they need. So I recently watched uh or finished watching it took me
5: a long time cuz it's I think it's 18 hours long but Ken Burns documentary series on the Vietnam War and and it was sort of staggering to think about how many uh young men and women were were killed uh in a war that uh as as history continues to show us as we unearth more and more information about it seems like it was largely for nothing uh, and was an extension of sort of cold war paranoia and and U.S. imperialism. But I was so struck by how many people were killed in that war. And and not long after I, I finished watching that documentary, I came across a piece uh, written about the opioid epidemic. And it said that uh, in 2016, in a single year, drug overdoses killed more Americans than the entire Vietnam War did over the course of the entire, uh, you know, several years that that, that war wow. spanned. And And that was so... I don't know why that struck me in such a in a way that that felt different than so many of the sort of other statistical parallels that I had heard, in part maybe because I was uh, inundated with these images of of body bags coming back from from Vietnam on, on the documentary. But uh, but I think it's so important that we continue to bring this up, because even though it's relatively well covered, I don't think that we always unless you are sort of proximate to the problem in the way that so many people are. I think we can forget how profoundly this is impacting so many people and and continues to. And and my news is kind of tied to to this in in a different way. Um, And and it comes from a piece that's written by Abraham Gutman in the Philadelphia Inquirer. And so following a wave of incidents over the past few months uh, in which prison staff were found, became sick um, after allegedly being exposed to a certain drug, the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections declared a statewide lockdown. And when the lockdown was lifted, a new policy was put in place at the start of the, what they called the, quote, drug elimination efforts of the DOC. And that meant that friends, family, and volunteer groups are no longer allowed to send books to people incarcerated in Pennsylvania state prisons. Uh, and that's because the DOC there argues that books were used as the means by which to smuggle drugs in. So there are real questions that have been raised about whether or not uh, these prison staff were even exposed to to the drugs that... The DOC is alleging uh, and toxology testing confirmed uh, that that was done by many experts that they were not actually exposed to the controlled substance and And so it's incredibly concerning that DOC would put a complete ban on books rather than just, for example, examine books more carefully for the substances that they're allegedly concerned about. And as we know, people sending books to those who are incarcerated is often one of the only ways that folks in prison have access to certain texts in the first place, uh, if they're lucky enough to have books or a library available while they're even behind bars. So it's incredibly concerning on that front, but it's also concerning for another reason— and part of what's important to examine with an issue like this is what specific drugs people are attempting to smuggle in, uh, and and that's where this is tied to the opioid crisis. Is that one of the drugs that people are attempting to to smuggle in is I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong, but Suboxone, um, which is a drug that is used as a means of helping people sort of slowly and and healthily and com- more comfortably sort of mitigate or or move away from from their addiction. Uh, and this is a, a drug that is not available to people who are in prison, even though it is very clearly the best drug available to people who are trying to mitigate their physical craving for opioids and, and subsequently their uh, potential for overdose. So just imagine if Pennsylvania prisons didn't offer insulin, for example, to people who had diabetes uh, and and then ban the books after people tried to smuggle insulin in because that would was the most effective, obviously, way of navigating and treating their diabetes. There would be public outrage, as Abraham uh, Gutman points out in this in this piece. But unfortunately, we view addiction and, and opioid addiction differently than we do something like diabetes, and and we shouldn't. If if the drug that is the most effective means of helping people treat their opioid addiction, uh is available to them on the outside, and that's what they're using. When they're arrested and incarcerated, they shouldn't be uh, stripped of access to the most effective tool to treat their disease. Um, And so this was something I wasn't aware of, and and I'm appreciative of um, Abraham for writing it, but but I think is is reflective of of still a larger stigma and a larger problem that we have in the way that we sort of publicly think about and and go about treating those who are suffering from uh, opioid addiction, especially those who are suffering in the most vulnerable contexts.
3: I think the points that you all are making are so important, especially, Clint, your point about all of the assumptions and the stories that we tell about people who are, are struggling with substance abuse, because we have to recognize that substance abuse can come about in a number of ways. None of those ways are a moral failing, and none of those ways should invite us to make moral judgments of people. But one of the things I was reading in relation to this story is actually about how many older Americans are overdosing from opioid opioids, uh, in part because a lot of doctors aren't actually warning their elderly patients about the risks of the painkillers they're being prescribed. Of course, older adults are not the age group that's most affected by this crisis, but there's a projection that misuse of opioids by older adults is projected to double between 2004 and 2020. So there are just a lot of ways that we actually need to be looking at this thing. I think we have said it before and we should say it again, that we should make sure that the kind of access to support, um, and care is being had equally across um, races, across socioeconomic lines, across uh, gender lines, across all of those lines, because there are so many ways in which we are paying attention to this now because of the face of the epidemic. Uh, but most certainly, care is warranted, and we we have to be figuring out how we are ensuring that people um, who come to this challenge through multiple means actually know how they can take care of themselves, especially older adults who are simply trying to take those painkillers and are at risk of misusing them.
1: That's the news.
6: Don't go anywhere.
1: More Pontiac the People's coming.
6: In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both Black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, With my busy life, I use Shipped same-day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper Amber will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the back. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ships.com.
1: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time, but the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, people. And now my conversation with Maria Haddon, who's running to be the first ever black queer alder woman in Chicago and is a community organizer with Our City, Our Voice, a nonprofit that specializes in participatory budgeting. And Keena Collins, who's a chairperson of the Illinois Council on Women and Girls. Hey, Maria and Keena, thanks so much for joining me today on Pod Save the
7: People. No, thanks Thank for you
1: having us. Thank
2: you so much for having us.
1: I wanted to start with both of you about how you got into this work. How did you start to think about activism and get involved in activism at scale focusing not only on the people just around you but trying to figure out like how we change things in the biggest way possible like what was what was that pathway like for you
2: yeah definitely so um, once again thank you for having me on Um, A lot of my background work is in gun violence prevention and criminal justice reform, community organizing around that. Um, I grew up in Austin, which is on the west side of the city of Chicago. Um, Austin is one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the city of Chicago. Um, It's had one of the highest homicide rates. For the last few years. Um, And growing up in Austin, how I got involved in GBP work was because I had witnessed a teenager die at the hands of gun violence at like the age of seven. And so um, I knew the shooter, I knew the victim. And um, so it it allowed me to humanize both of them. And um, they were regular kids, right? And so I knew that I had to go beyond the gun if I wanted to curb gun violence. And that meant striking at the root causes of that. and that's, you know, in Chicago, it's public school shutdowns, it's not having workforce training programs, it's uh the hyper segregation that goes on from the resources. And so um I started to get into the, to the gun violence prevention movement on the national level. And the more rooms I went into, I saw less women, less people of color, and I'm like, we're the one and less youth. And I'm like, we're the ones experiencing gun violence at the right. highest rate. <laughs> right. And so um I got tired of um I got tired of basically going into these policy meetings with legislators and um, them just kind of giving us the pacifier meetings. And so... um of course, Donald Trump gets elected in 2016 and everybody's marching and protesting. And I said, OK, well, it's it's no longer just we have to grab them by the polls. We have to grab them by the policy, <laughs> too. And, and so um, I started to write legislation. And that's how the Illinois Council on Women and Girls ended up uh, becoming a piece of legislation that just, you know, was signed into law. Like, you know, I, I wanted to take more of an action approach.
7: And uh, good morning to Maria. Um. Similarly to to Kina, definitely personal experience is is at the root of of an a necessity. It is just at the root of you know how I got involved. Um, so specifically with my work with participatory budgeting and bringing more inclusive and equitable decision making processes to local government. With our uh, my organization, our city, our voice, and before that, the participatory budgeting project. I um, am originally from Columbus, Ohio but moved to Chicago uh, about 15 years ago. And I uh, had a situation during the housing bubble burst where I had purchased a a home, purchased my uh, first home, a condo, and was one of thousands and thousands of people around the city of Chicago and, of course, the country that were really caught mid-development. So I had purchased a a modest apartment in my neighborhood of Rogers Park in 2007, and the developer that um, was doing this this construction project, when the money stopped flowing and the loans dried up, he took the $5 million bank loan that he had, and he took all the money from there were about 19 families that had purchased homes, and, and he fled the country. And so I spent three years organizing with my neighbors, just trying to keep our, our lights on and our water floating, um, making repairs, figuring out how we were going to complete the other half of our building with, with no money, um, as he had taken a lot of uh, kind of our homeowners association fees and things as well. And it was this uh, necessity-driven deep dive into how the city of Chicago worked that left me... Um, with a totally different perspective of I, I thought because I, you know, I was in I was in grad school full time. I was working full time. I was volunteering. I was a regular voter. I come from, you know, a middle class family in in Ohio, where you know we're supposed to do these things, and then the government's supposed to do its part. And finding that the city of Chicago and I did not have the relationship that I thought we did. When thousands of people around the city, renters, homeowners, were were literally like losing their homes. Uh, And I talked to the city council person in charge of my district about it, saying, you know, what conversations are you guys having at city council level about how you're going to help thousands and thousands of residents in the city? And uh, the answer I was given was that it's a really big problem and no one person could fix it. So that was in... uh, Between 2007 and and 2010, and that's also when I got to volunteer in our first participatory budgeting process in in my uh, community. So we're the first uh, municipal district in the United States, the 49th Ward in Chicago, where participatory budgeting was used. And it's just the opposite, right? It's the idea that these really big problems that no one person can fix, in my opinion, that's why we have government. That's why we organize. That's why we build community and work together. And that was the experience I had volunteering and participatory budgeting that led me to uh, go on to be a founding board member of the national organization and continue the path of work that I've been on for the last eight years.
1: I mean, wow. It, it, it is like the work got brought to you in so many ways and and you understood your call to action is necessary in that moment. You know, Kina, Kina I wanted to think about, I wanted to ask you about what is it like to be so proximate to trauma and, and see people on the national stage or people who've not been to Chicago, spend no time in Chicago, talk about the violence and and they pathologize blackness and they talk about, they essentially feed this narrative of black people savage. And so what is it like to be in the midst of of that conversation at the national level, at the local level, help people think, and like to help people think about like what solutions look like and like to challenge the way They're thinking about the system today. Like, what is it? I just want to know, like, what's it like to be in the midst of that and do this work, like the midst of the reality and the midst of like the narrative?
2: Yeah. So the one thing that I always like to tell people is that Chicago has a history of grassroots organizing. We are a grassroots organizing city. So this myth that black and brown communities are not boots on the ground every single day um, trying to prevent intracommunal violence, because that's exactly what it is. We know it's a red herring to say black on black crime, right? That doesn't exist, right? It's who you're in proximity to. Um, To say that we don't try to um, curb the intracommunal violence that goes on is just a gross mischaracterization of the folks um, in the city of Chicago. I always point people to um, back to elected officials, aldermen, the mayor's office um, and specifically the city budget because it shows the priority of the city of Chicago, right? When we have um, the Chicago police department being constantly invested in and then black and brown communities having their schooling and education Uh, defunded and not being invested in, um, what do you think is going to happen, right? They've increased the police budget by 3.9 percent, and that doesn't sound like a lot, but the police budget currently in the city of Chicago is 1.5 plus billion dollars, right? But Chicago Public Schools needs three billion dollars just to be habitable, right? Like there's holes in the wall and mold in the school and lead in the water. And so um, people don't look at On the micro level, what's going on in some of these communities that is kind of inflaming a lot of this violence that's going on? When you cut opportunities, when you cut the ability for people to mobilize and have a higher standard of living, um, of course, violence will not be reduced. And so, once again, I think it's important. To um, be at the policy table, but also encourage people to be a part of the direct action, right, because there's an accountability piece that needs to take place. And so um, I try to find that that good balance. But it's not abnormal to come to a a neighborhood in the city of Chicago and see people um, getting resources for their community organizing to prevent being violence interrupters um, and just being hands on on the approach to curb the gun violence in the city of Chicago.
1: And, And what's a violence interrupter for people who've never heard that phrase before?
2: Yeah, um, a violence interrupter. Actually, a, 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 a great program was started in the west side of Chicago, which is the portion of Chicago that I'm from called Ceasefire. And essentially, it was ex gang members, people who were in street life who came in and they intervened before violence occurred. So essentially, it gave the community the power to, um, Nip the violence in the bud before we would even have to call law enforcement and actually cease fire was able to reduce gun violence by about 51 percent in the first year that it was implemented. And so it's basically training people who are already in the community, who people know, everyday people in these communities, who they see, who they trust, who they have rapport with um who come in and do essentially community policing, right, without having to call the law enforcement, which we know can be uh, problematic at times when they come, and so um, that's what a violence interrupter is.
7: Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to, I want to, you know, pick up where what Keena was talking about. So that ceasefire program uh, now in Illinois is called Cure Violence. Yep, and it suffered great cuts. Mm-hmm. When the current governor um, left us two years without a budget yep. and is, is now working on rebuilding, right? And so that's another thing, as um, Kina was mentioning, budgets are our values documents. Where we spend our money in a city or a county or a state or a country is where literally we are we are showing value and in, in priorities and what we care about. Um, it is not difficult to figure out where we should be prioritizing our budgets, um, and working with people with in, in this participatory budgeting process is a really empowering thing. So whether it's looking at violence interrupters who are, are literally being given the resources to do the community-building work that, that's not only um, interrupting violence but also humanizing people who are constantly told through uh, decades of being devalued by government, um, by the closing of our schools— by the divestment and infrastructure in in black and brown neighborhoods in Chicago in poor communities that we don't matter. And whether it's violence interrupters or people being engaged in participatory budgeting at this like really local grassroots level, we're being, we, we're given the opportunity to kind of create our own communities, have access to education and meaningful decision making that helps us feel like we can invest in our communities again, um, take control and and this is something that, that happens in every Chicago neighborhood. Mm-hmm. People want to make their communities great. They want to have a say. They want to participate. And when given the opportunity and the chance, they do.
2: This current mayor, Mayor Rahm Emanuel, when he came into office in 2009, um, his, one of his first priorities was to close six mental health facilities in the city. So I love that you brought up the point about trauma. Because these areas that are experiencing high um, density and gun violence, let's talk about how these people are going through post-traumatic stress disorder, they're going through anxiety, they're going through depression, and they have no city services or anywhere to turn to cure that. No one is following up with them after they've been shot. And a whole neighborhood has been, you know, sprayed with bullets, right? And so they have to be re-entered into the same neighborhood where they experienced the trauma. And people don't know that a lot of the times, those people who suffer from the PTSD, they can't tell the difference between a threat and a non-threat anymore because they're suffering through that 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 PTSD and anxiety.
1: And Maria, you talked about like the experience around housing and how that to sort of pushed you into activism. I'd love to know what you learned about how power works or doesn't work or what the government's responsibility should be versus what it is? Or like, what did you learn about the system or about the way people interact with the system? Like just from that initial experience and from the work that, that it birthed?
7: Um, that's a great question. Um, I often tell people I learned how to tile floors <laughs> um <laughs> I learned how to yes <laughs> <I learned>, real <laughs> I learned how to build some things um but but no for for real that most of what the core part of why we have government is about working together uh pooling our resources keeping us safe um and providing the most opportunities and what I found in the fallout of of the housing crisis in in Chicago were um, really sympathetic people individuals within government, within the corporation council, within the alderman's office. Um, An alderman is city council in Chicago, just FYI. Um, So I found lots of sympathetic individuals who felt bad about what was happening. But what I found were no systemic institutional plans in place to help residents. And we had to rehire an architect um, because the developer had built our building too far off plan. Um, There were all kinds of code violations and issues that we had to deal with that uncovered to me um, that when the money was flowing, um, as it was right before the collapse, when the money was flowing, all those consumer protections, checks, policies, and and things that were put in place by the city and the state were just kind of thrown out the window and overlooked. Um, And it showed me a, a failure of government even at the local level. In making sure that just because somebody was making money, um, that we're not just throwing all these kind of rules and regulations out the window. And and then there was no responsibility afterwards. When it became clear to me that no one else was going to do it, we did it ourselves. And so finding a way to be part of government, to find ways to bring people into government with these participatory decision-making processes and especially around the budget – Is is though is why I chose to continue doing that work.
1: Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People.
7: Don't go anywhere; there's more to come.
6: With my busy life, I use Shipped same day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper Amber will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the back. Shipped.
0: Delight in every delivery.
6: Learn more at Shipped.com.
0: When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions.
3: Can we even afford to buy a house right now?
1: This is for both of you. You know, I remember when I ran for mayor, is that one of the most sort of interesting pieces of backlash that I got was people saying that the most the most serious work happens outside of activism. That if we want to if we want to really change the way the system and power flows, that we have to do it from the outside. That we have to push the system to be better. Uh, that was before Trump ran for office. You know, now running for office is is very differently. Uh, but you know, I obviously didn't agree with that, which is why I ran for mayor. But I'd love to know, like, what you, how you experienced that in your hometown, and like, what, what you think about that.
7: Sure, I've been in the activism space, um, and then have really spent a lot of my, a lot of the last eight years, in that middle ground uh, between activism and and also uh, that kind of civil society work, right? So being in in a nonprofit, I work always in the space of government and community. Grassroots and top-level decision making, and in creating that that the relationships in that space. So for me, it wasn't um, as much of a leap. And also, I keep my I keep my connections, and I and I keep um, in in touch with uh, you know my my kind of organizing homes and my activism homes, and and it, I think it's very important that everyone kind of be in the space where they're most effective. And so one of the big questions I asked myself um, when, when trying to decide whether I should run or not was, will I be effective in this space? Over the last year, what's also become clear to me is that even being like the, the possibility of being able to have a viable run for an elected public office is a privilege. Mm-hmm. And, and that was and so this has really become a, a lesson learned in um, I think the overall movement work of how do we use our privileges, all of the things that that allow me to, to build a campaign and allow anyone here to build a campaign are so tied up in perceptions, what you look like. Um, do you have stable employment? Do you have affordable housing? Um, what do people think of you? Are you educated mm-hmm. enough? Are you palatable enough? You know, as a, as a black woman, I'm light skinned. Right. Like I I, there are all kinds of privileges of how people perceive you and whether they even will give you the time of day in considering whether you could be a candidate. You know, it hasn't been a tough decision for me because we need to transform spaces inside while we're also transforming spaces outside. So for those of us who have the experiences, the access and the privileges to to connect those spaces, I think we need to use it and we like we need to use it in, in service to our communities um, and to move things forward
1: to open and Ken, if you had a magic wand what would you what would you want
2: <laughs> um man that is such a broad question um essentially i would want particularly generation z because that's who's coming up behind us right um i want to prepare them to be successors and that is where we were failed as millennials right like Black Lives Matter ended up happening. The Women's March, March for Our Lives is happening now. And we essentially had to teach ourselves about movement work and coming up with different systems on how to deconstruct infrastructural racism, even though this, these things have happened Um Way before we've even started any of uh, any of these current movements that are going on, and in Chicago in particular, there there's this dynamic where we have aldermen, we have mayors, we have congressional leaders that sit in these districts, and they want to die in their seats, and it's like that cannot that is not sustainable. <laughs> so, if I had a magic wand, it would be to continue to teach um, activists to understand that. Yes the protesting and the marching and the rallying and the sit-ins and the direct action all of that is important but we also have to build our own tables and once we get to the get get a seat at the table we can't just be so grateful for the crumbs that have been given to us that we are complacent and become complicit to the violence that's being inflicted on uh, the city of Chicago and neighborhoods that are disinvan- uh, disenfranchised and marginalized and I think that the way that people are looking at violence in Chicago is very different than the way that I look at violence in Chicago. I look at violence in Chicago as um, lack of economic opportunity. I look at violence in the city of Chicago as food deserts. I look at in medical deserts. I look at violence against the city of Chicago and the fact that we don't have enough youth participating in things like the Cop Academy that's being built. Um, we don't have enough representation of women and girls and a lot of the decisions that get made about them. And so if I had a magic wand, it would be to have elected officials to stop making policy about us without us.
1: And Maria, I wanted to talk about your run. You're running to be an alder woman. Why? Do you think that this is a, do you think that this is the most impactful way that you can make change? Like what is the, what's the what behind, uh, the what and the why behind your run?
7: It's not just about necessarily what policies can I pass? Though of course there are key pieces that are that are important to not just the residents in my ward, but around the city around making sure we have affordable and accessible housing. Right. Making sure we have fully funded public schools, making sure that we have economic opportunities at the local level. So living wage jobs and also making sure we're supporting small businesses, which make up so much of the community in Chicago. Like those are kind of the, the core pieces of what I will be doing and focusing on as a as a policymaker and an alderman in my ward. And also, it's about adding to the culture change and the shift of what's happening. We need to take over these roles. The the incumbent I'm running against has been in for 27 years. As Kina mentioned, we don't have term limits in Illinois. Right. People get in these seats. And even if they initially were change makers, even if they were initially community right. activists, there's a too um, common trend of that people staying longer than their. Uh, shelf life maybe is the I've nice way to say. I've had
2: one mayor my entire life and then now Rahm Emanuel. <laughs> so Richard M. Daly was the mayor for mm-hmm. my entire life and then Rahm Emanuel in, in these last two terms.
7: Yeah, right. and we, we have so much work to do. We cannot afford to waste. Right. We can't afford to waste these four-year terms at a time on people who are unwilling or unable to address the large problems mm-hmm. we can't have another 4 years of chicago being run through the media as as having the highest gun violence we can't have another 4 years of us figuring out or, or rather not figuring out how we're going to fund our pensions mm-hmm. or what we're doing with our public schools, it's unacceptable. And we're losing people. We're losing black and oh, brown people yeah. and poor people specifically. Absolutely. like They're leaving the city because we can't afford to live here or because the schools are not adequate for our children. And so one of my biggest, like, biggest pieces has been most of the things that I'm going to work on for my community um, are what's going to be helpful for the rest of Chicago so that we can stay here. Um, mm-hmm. but that that larger piece is uh there's just an urgency like we can't afford to wait um we can't afford to wait any longer we're We're seeing this, and I'm sure you're seeing it in your city uh like people are people are angry and and they're motivated, but also people are hopeful. And so I think we've all been told a lie in right. Chicago. And the lie is this is the way it has to be because this is the way it's always been. Yep. And that culture, that stagnation um, would be fine if everything was great. But people are dying. People are leaving. People are homeless. People are hungry. And it's not acceptable. But I am not alone. As Keena mentioned, there are people all over the city. We're going to change our city council. And we have a different attitude. And that attitude is it's a lie that you can't change things.
1: And what do you say to the people who are like, voted my whole life, voted, I did it over and over. And like, the world just didn't change the way that I was promised it or I was told that the world would change. Like, what do you say to those people who's like, hope is challenging moments like this?
2: Well, I would say like any any movement that happens is, it, we can't be with the instant gratification. Like we cannot. Like this is decades and generations of infrastructures of racism and sexism and classism, especially in major metropolitan cities like the city of Chicago. Um, And that takes time. And when do we, I always encourage people to continue to invest back into the community because there's absolutely no power like people power. Right. And so it's the small immediate steps that we need to take action steps that we need to take in front of us versus just, the major things that we think we can change overnight because that's not going to happen, right? It's not going to happen overnight, nor should we want it to happen overnight. We should go through the process. Once again, like I said, create successors, but also understand that what are the immediate things that we can do in our communities right now, whether that's community beautification, which is something that's huge. And need to take place here in the city of Chicago, really getting involved in local school councils to make sure that your schools are not getting shut down. Um, like I said, striking at the root causes of gun violence, right? And that's... Uh community, um, once again, community investment and relationship and rapport building with your neighbors. All of those things are day-to-day things that you can start to do. Um, Obviously, it's not going to flip the entire system on its head, and it's not the sexy work (laughs) that everybody uh, wants to do, but it's the important work. And I think that we confuse like excitement with the new thing that's happening with actual infrastructural change and institutional change. And so um, that's something that, like, I'm even dealing with as I built out the Illinois Council on Women and Girls. You know, I think that there's a great movement. This is the year of the woman. Over 500 women ran for office. 309 ended up on the ballot. We have, like, over 180 nominations for the House, 11 governor seats. All of this is great. But at the end of the day... um, it's going to put it's going to take some real work for us to start closing that pay wage equity gap. You know, celebrate the, the tiny wins um, that you have in your immediate environment. And as you take a, a, a step back and you look at the bigger picture, you'll see how you're starting to impact change. But it takes time.
7: We can't do these things by ourselves. Sure can't. Like we can't. And, and to try and do them by ourselves or to face them alone um, is to face despair and defeat and to be overwhelmed and we can only do them together and the relationships we build all have value so even in our losses we have learnings we have relationships and we move forward in progress Um, and that's that's the best advice i would give to folks like our expectations are not always going to be met um, we need to have longer perspectives and views but mainly you need to form a community you need to get with other people and you need to do this work in community and together because we can't do it by ourselves.
2: And I think beyond that, just really quickly, we we need to talk about how oppressed and marginalized groups of people oppress other people within those groups, right? Like, we black black women, for example, I don't
1: know if people are ready for that one. But look, you know.
2: <laughs> look do we have time. But let me quickly just say and preach. Let me just quickly say <laughs> uh, one thing that I have been talking to a lot of women across the state about and wh- white allies in particular is that, you know, black women have saved the Democratic Party for generations. But beyond that, when I wrote the Illinois Council on Women and Girls, um, when we were writing the bill, I said, I want to include transgender women and girls. And that caused this uproar amongst women. The biggest people who pushed back were women. And I'm like, how is this possible? We have to start writing policy and including people into this movement and loving them radically like we have never loved before. Because if we want people to look at us different, we have to work on the internal work that needs to go on. Mm -hmm. But continuing to silence and marginalize groups within the oppressed group is not going to help us at all. So we can't have these unrealistic bars of each other. We can't be suspicious of one another. And if you are, that's why we're not making the strides that we need to be making.
1: And you'd be the first Black queer woman on the council.
7: That's correct. And the uh, first uh, Black alderman on the north side of Chicago. That's right. Because Chicago.
1: I mean, wow. (laughs)
3: Let's go.
1: A lot of work to do. And how do you think about your organizing work when you think about the complexity of identity? When you think about your organizing work, when you think about all the things that we're engaged in to make the world uh, the world we know it can be?
7: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. I find it, and I, and I count this as a, as, a, as a privilege and a, and a blessing, um, the, the, the family that I have, the, the community I've always had around me have made it pretty easy for me, easier than, than I know other people have it, to um, hold all my identities in, in a lot of comfort, um, a lot of comfort in my, in my own skin and kind of in who I am. And but that's also one of the things that I, I know that I have the the benefit of of bringing that into other spaces. So in, mm. in my work, um, in my community, in in everything that I do, me being comfortable and being um, uh, to borrow from our BYP one hundred slogans, unapologetically black, mm-hmm. unapologetically you know queer, yes. unapologetically a woman, and all those things. Um, It actually makes a difference, right? Like when you show up and and I'm in my space and I'm feeling comfortable, um, it's almost like a a challenge or a a dare to other folks to not be. Mm -hmm. Um, I also happen to be kind of a nice person and pretty good at making people feel comfortable. (laughs) You are very nice. Um, (laughs) uh, But it is also about representation, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm very aware that there's there's stepping into a public space means stepping into representation. um, And as a... Uh, people can't can't be what they can't see, and also on the issues we do have a black caucus in Chicago City Council. <laughs> do we? And <laughs> we, we have an LGBT caucus, right? <laughs> and we have a new woman's caucus. And I think about also um, using the, all those bridges of identities. Mm-hmm. To be able to create more bridges and get us to work together.
2: Well, let me just say, too, though, it's not just about writing good laws and good policy. There are great laws out there. There are great pieces of legislation that were written. It's about changing and shifting culture. Mm -hmm. That is the point of writing policy is that, you know, if we have an Illinois Council on Women and Girls, it's not enough to get 10,000 brilliant women in the room and no men. Right. Like Mm -hmm. in 10,000 abled body, college-educated, Christian-centered, who are we fighting for, right? Like we have to open up the intersections that people stand in. We have to be truly inclusive, but we also need to shift culture because that's the only way we're going to see change in this country is if we start shifting culture um, around a lot of these like discriminatory practices and, and feelings towards women and people of color, et cetera, et cetera.
7: We make better decisions for all of us when we have diverse voices at the decision-making table.
1: And where can people go to learn more about the work that you both do?
2: Yep. So you can follow me on Instagram at Kina underscore Collins. That's K-I-N-A underscore Collins. Um, I'm also doing work with Chicago Neighborhood Alliance, which is my community organization um, that I started. So um, our Facebook page is Chicago Neighborhood Alliance.
7: And uh, you can find me on all social media at Maria449, so M-A-R-I-A-F-O-R-4-9. And uh, if you want to know more about participatory budgeting and work that's the grassroots-level building inclusive and equitable decision-making processes in government, check out my website for our organization, OurCityOurVoice.org. So that's O U R C I T Y O U R V O i-c-e dot o-r-g
1: and the last question is a question that i ask everybody is that what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you mm. <laughs> i'm gonna <laughs> start i'm gonna start go with ahead. this one Keena. please go ahead. <laughs> um,
0: and
7: Keena's kina's heard this before from me um uh and it's uh um, from my mom my mom always always says uh you're equal to the task yes. um and so this is uh um, something that I like to reflect on personally, but also what I, I definitely try and share with other folks. We're not going to change everything overnight, but um, but change is the law of the universe. Things are going to change and and there's nothing that we're facing that, that we can't handle, especially when we're working together. So that focus on community um, and family um, together, we're equal to the task.
2: Um, and I would definitely say to whom much is given, much is required. Right. And I think that um, what people would qualify as what much is, is different. For me, it was the ability to grow up in a household with union workers. It was the ability to survive and be a survivor from gun violence and then turn that into turn that pain into power and become a gun violence prevention advocate with an emphasis on communities of color and women and in low income communities. It was the ability to go off to Louisiana State University and attend school there and then come back to Austin. Um, I, I honestly believe that you can truly make the change wherever you are. Um And you don't have to sell yourself, your soul or your community out.
1: Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.
0: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last.